Welcome to Connect to Capital, the podcast brought to you by Scale Investors. I'm your host, Catherine Robson, Chair of the Scale Investors Board. Our vision at Scale Investors is to create a world where gender does not limit access to capital. We do that by putting our money where our mouth is and investing in outstanding women founders. But even more than that, we know the transformational power of collaboration and we are passionate about connecting founders with the advice, education and deep network that will enable them to thrive. In this podcast, we interview Australia's most successful and thoughtful venture investors because we believe that knowledge is power and education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. We hope you love this conversation and are as excited as we are about giving all entrepreneurs the opportunity to create a better future. It's time to open access. Our guest this week is Alistair Coleman, the founder and managing partner of Folklore Ventures, an Australian venture capital firm which invests across the life of startups, right from the first check. Alistair knows plenty about the entrepreneurial journey, having been a founder and an operator himself, including co-founding Shipping Easy, which was subsequently acquired by Stamps.com. The first time I met Alistair, I was so impressed by the clarity and effectiveness of his mental frameworks. He seems to have a way of cutting through complexity by being able to structure information that allows new connections to be made and insights to be gained. It's no surprise that Alistair subsequently confirmed that he spends quite a lot of time thinking about how to think about things. I hope you enjoy the discussion. Welcome, Alistair. Great to see you. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. When we first talked about doing a podcast together and, you know, I suggested that it was for a largely female audience, one of the things you pointed out was that you were keen not to be a mansplainer. And I was really interested to understand what is it in your background that A, makes you sort of conscious of, you know, mansplaining and B, you know, wanting to make sure that you're not one? I think a heavy dose of awareness around how one is perceived and where it's appropriate for one to be having opinions. And I think the conversation we originally had was, you know, providing advice to female founders and female investors. And, you know, I do feel like the best people to be doing that in some respects are women who have gone through that journey and not necessarily the men who have gone through that journey. Um, so I think that that's, that's just a sort of level of sensitivity around, around that. And also I think we all trip up every now and then and, you become quite aware if you're doing something wrong, uh, if you're around strong women who are happy to happy to tell you when you're tripping up. And so I think it's on all of us to make sure that we don't fall into traps that that are unnecessary. So that's really where the sensitivity comes from and, and just a large degree of respect for the women that I work with. And thinking about your background, can you give us a bit of a sense of, you know, how your background has shaped your views of, of, you know, how to run a great business and how to be a great investor? I don't know that uh, yet would sit at the sort of at the greatness level on either of those, but certainly aspire to get there. My parents were quite a bit older than me. They had me pretty late. And my mother did what a lot of women did in, in the early 50s. And she went to school and if you weren't studying English or or science, you didn't go to university back then and uh, in the early 50s. And so she went into the workforce in her late teens. And, you know, she became a a healthcare administrator and ended up running uh, what is quite 
a large healthcare network in Victoria. I grew up in Melbourne and, um, and watching her succeed despite not having the opportunities that we all take for granted now was uh, really interesting. And, you know, she was also a country girl. And so, so I think just that tendency to not take disadvantage or not take doors not being opened as, as a sort of a block to ambition, I think is something that has always been in our family. And also, you know, we're really taught to work very, very hard in our family. And so I think ultimately, if you're prepared to work with other people and you're prepared to accept that there, you know, people can be successful from different backgrounds and you're prepared to work very hard and you've got some vision and some ambition, then you're halfway there. That's really been sort of the tenet of my experience growing up. And I don't see the world with any limitations. And I do get frustrated when I find that women experience those limitations when I don't think that they should. And the reality is that that half of the population is smarter than the half of the population that I belong to. And we've come a pretty long way in this world, despite underinvesting in the smarter half of the population. So I I've just do have that sort of sense in, ingrained in me. How did your parents transmit that message that the expectation was to work really hard? Only through demonstration. You know, we just had a, you know, the sort of upbringing that it was sort of constantly demonstrated that you work hard and you make good decisions and those decisions pay off through the satisfaction of being able to achieve what you wanted to achieve or, and not necessarily in a monetary sense. Both of my parents did not chase sort of highly commercial backgrounds or careers. And so I think there's just the lessons of hard work were sort of clear in front of us. And how did you find your way into venture then? That's a really interesting question because when I started my career, as I said, I grew up in Melbourne, I went to work for a family office, a group that managed capital for three or four families and and they had invested in the dot-com boom. And when I arrived, it was about 12 to 18 months after the, the crash. And yeah, it was just surprising to me that people who were sort of famed as great investors had, had fallen into some pretty rudimentary traps around how they were allocating their capital. And so I started my career and it was, um, you know, really quite interesting to see that playing out and people had made investments in companies. There, were, there was sort of no fundamental basis for the product. And I sort of transitioned from there into a very large media company called Fairfax Media, which is now owned by nine, but at the time it was the largest media company in the country, a sort of five, $6 billion company with $3 billion of cash on the balance sheet. And it was a terrific opportunity to go there and learn how technology was going to play out. And it's something I think most people probably take for granted now, which is the internet effectively destroyed media. But, you know, 15 years ago, it wasn't really that clear how that was going to happen. It was clear that it was going to happen to most people, but it wasn't clear how it was going to happen. And I don't think that company fundamentally wanted to accept that it was going to happen. And so so it was quite an interesting period watching people trying to grasp the threat of the internet, but not trying to accept the risk and then not trying to actually do anything about it fundamentally to their business. And, And so I watched a business sort of immolate itself from the inside, which was quite fascinating despite the hard work of some really outstanding people internally and uh, companies are made up of good people by and large and all of that really just taught me that 
confidence in your decision-making can often lead to ruin. And all of those lessons of sort of that sort of boulevard of red lights, seeing mistakes up close and personal was really quite fascinating for me. And I'd always loved investment. And so when I stepped out of corporate career in my uh, early 30s, I, I really just wanted to work for myself and co-founded a company, a SaaS company, and that did well and um, grew that business. And then we made a, a pretty extreme pivot to the product and moved the company to the US. And So this was Ship It? Uh, shipping Easy. Shipping Easy, yeah. And through that process, I decided that pursuing a career under my own steam in investment was something that was fundamentally the right path for me. And, and I started to make investments myself and had already made investments. And, and then uh, in 2012, I decided to commit completely to that journey. That was really the path. And it was really seeing, seeing a lot of people's mistakes, a lot of people's good decisions and understanding that the world was changing and, and wanting to be a part of that change. And was it easy for you to leave that security of a regular paycheck to, to go and do something on your own, particularly given that it was a business that was sort of unproven? You know, it's one thing to leave corporate life and go and do something that's on a well-trodden path, but it was internet-based businesses, especially at that time, were no guarantee of success. So was that a hard decision? I mean, in some respects, there's still not a guarantee of success, but it wasn't for me a hard decision because I, I went to work for a big four accounting firm for about 11 months and just absolutely hated the experience of working there, just solidified why that type of career wasn't for me. And at the bottom of the GFC, I think the 17th of February, 2009, word got around that there was going to be a round of redundancies and I couldn't wait, could not wait to be made redundant. Uh, Hands straight up in the air? I really, it was just, it was a perfect opportunity. And I took the redundancy and ran and rang a couple of friends and said, look, I'm thinking about starting a business. And they said, well, now's the best time to do it. I mean, the financial world has turned itself inside out. And if you can build businesses in this environment, you can build businesses anytime. And I, I feel the same way about founders now, and which is anybody who's been able to survive the last two years and build a business has learned a lot more lessons than anybody in the prior 10 years that built it during the boom times. That adaptiveness and the willingness to solve for problems that fundamentally aren't caused by you, I think is what makes good business people. What about your decisions, you know, the other pivotal decisions, you know, the one to move Shipping Easy to the US and then the decision to sell it? What were those two decision points like? Oh, they were very difficult. So Mark and I got together and he was building a, a business that I didn't think had scale attached to it. I didn't think that he could scale it. And I was really interested in the nature of automation around e-commerce and uh, this is sort of 2010 and had a view that uh, e-commerce was going to be about the long tail, not bringing extremely large retailers online and servicing the long tail of people who wanted to create businesses online for themselves, small businesses. And, uh, and e-commerce platforms like Shopify were still very early. I mean, Shopify was a three or four-year-old company at the time and and it was just evident that, that that was going to be the path. And we started the business in Australia. We acquired Australian customers. We acquired customers overseas, had to build partnerships and relationships with career companies and mail companies. And um, in that sort of path of discovery around what the right customer was, it became evident 
the type of customer we should be pursuing and where those customers should be. And it was clear that there was a particular revenue threshold for a customer that made our product extremely valuable to them. And the majority of them were in the US. And I actually didn't think at the time that I had the ability to run a company. I sort of almost sort of fell into running the company. And, and we made a collective decision to hire a CEO and she came in to the business, you know, eyes wide open on, on the need to both transition the company to the US and, and also, also effectively restart customer acquisition and pursue and churn out the customers that we already had and leave the valuable ones and then, and then start acquiring new ones and also work through the process of adapting the software because, you know, we had a couple of years of building towards a thesis, but the customers told us exactly what they wanted. And so that wasn't a difficult decision. I think that, you know, the challenge that we had was that it was somewhat evident that we were entering a absolute bull market for SaaS companies. And I think that the board of the company started to wonder whether growth could continue in the company. And it, it was a very, I mean, very high growth company. And my sort of urging to the board was don't jump off and sell a company that is clearly going to double or triple over the next few years. Don't jump off a company in this environment when, you know, we're at the front end of the change. We're not at the tail end of the change. And I think people around the board, I think we brought on, didn't necessarily bring on the right investors and they really saw a path to demonstrating an exit and saw a path to putting some money back in their pocket and be happy with the returns. And, and I think that fundamentally um, the company would have been worth four or five times more than what it was by the time we sold it if we'd waited 18 months or two years. You know, a good parallel is a company called Big Commerce, which was started by a couple of Australian guys, moved to the US about two months before us, was about um, 50% bigger than us on the revenue line, IPO late last year for $9 billion. Now, that's six years after we sold the company. So I think, you know, one of the things I took into folklore and what we wanted to do here was not sell out of the most wildly successful companies that you're in. I think fundamentally that's the job of an investor is to be patient and to anchor to the good signaling that's occurring and to not, not find the exit in spite of yourself. And, uh, and so that's something that uh, we have in our, in our investment thesis here and certainly something that I experienced in Shipping Easy. And, I mean, it's the case point in selling too early. It seems like one of the central themes for folklore is that experience of having been a founder and an operator in a business is essential to be a good investor. Is it a prerequisite or, or is it just something that's really important to have? As- I think it helps. I think it comes down to judgment. For early stage companies, the customers are not necessarily telling you everything you need to know about the product and the pricing. And uncertainty changes with companies. You know, At a very early stage, the, the uncertainty sits with, will customers buy this? Can I price it the right way? Can I market the right way? Can I get sort of product-led growth from within my user experience that allows people to share that product with other people and then get some viral nature to the growth? Can I build a team? Can I lead? I mean, a lot of founders don't know if they can lead people. And there's a whole lot of those uncertainties. And really, uncertainty in its own right doesn't really change over time from an early stage to a late stage, but the nature of the uncertainty changes. So a couple of years down the line, if you're relatively successful, the question is, do I need to put a sales and marketing team in the US? 
or wherever else I want to acquire customers? How do I scale from 10 people to 100 people? How do I make sure that I get the culture right as I do that? And so you just get a different nature of the uncertainty within a company. And, and I think that one of the things that we try and look for is people who have this unique ability to build the companies that they're setting out to build. And I believe it helps us to pick those people by having a sense for how to build a company in the first place and empathy for how hard it is to build a company and the patience that we didn't have at Shipping Easy at a board level to go through the ups and downs that you have to go through in order to succeed. And so as a firm, I think we're extremely patient with operating missteps. We have a set of values in and around the firm and we have some principles in the firm. And ultimately, you know, we want to protect the reputations and relationships of our with our portfolio companies. And, you know, we ask people to respect that for us as well. And we get in and fight for our companies as well and try and help our founders through those inflection moments where they could build a modestly good company or they could build a great company and help help them get through that point. And I think that that's, that's one of the reasons why we have a team that has a lot of operating experience. So you sold Shipping Easy, came back to Australia. Tempest was the name of the company when it was first founded. Had all your experiences, you know, working with investors just inform what you wanted Tempest to be at the time? Or uh, well, well, I actually um, stepped out of the operating role in the firm when we hired a CEO. And one of the lessons is if you're going to hire somebody to run a company, it doesn't help to stay planted in that seat, getting in their way. And, and that's just good business. And so when we moved the company to the US, it was a pretty straightforward decision to say, okay, we've made a decision that we want somebody in this role who can grow the business from 10 people to 80 people and do that in 12 months time in another country. And, and that was, you know, a good decision. And so it was actually quite, quite a smooth transition. You know, as soon as, soon as we had that move completed, I actually started investing and uh, we didn't sell shipping easy for two or three years after we moved the company to the US. You know, growing your investment firm, how has that experience been? A complete breeze. You know, you, you hear these anecdotes of 500 meetings, 400 meetings, and I don't know how many meetings we've had on funds and fundraising, but I would say that it would easily be 500 meetings across our team. I, I literally get up out of bed every morning really excited for what the day will hold. It is hard work to manage other people's money and do it in a way that we call it sort of having a high degree of financial hygiene around what we're doing and why we're doing it. It's really quite difficult, I think, to establish an investment process and stick to that process and fine tune it rather than make big adjustments to it so that you can see over time how you're performing. And I think that that requires a lot of discipline and that's not easy. As you start to scale businesses, you have to respect the backgrounds of people you bring in and you have to allow them the space to add value the way that you can anticipate that they will and also that they want to. And, and so we've maintained a very strict discipline around our investment process, which we think works. And that's been hard because, you know, people have to learn that process and then they have to see it play out and they have to understand why things are the way they are. And, you know, I'm sitting in an office now, which is our new office and we'll hold 30 to 35 people. And, you know, we've gone from, you know, one person, 
team effectively to 14 or 15 people now and we're hiring six people at the moment so the scale and the nature of change is really quite an interesting process to go through and I do see venture capital really as a middleware activity I think there is a tendency for uh, VCs to publicly pat themselves on the back for you know the jobs that they've done but ultimately the founders are the ones who have done the work and sure you've got to have the conviction and you've got to have the insight and you've got to allocate the capital and you've got to be supportive and you've got to allocate the right amount of capital for the risk and also the upside but you know we really are just middleware between our investors and our founders and we have to be you know really high performing middleware essentially and um, it's not necessarily all about us. So on that, I know it's always hard, but what are some of your favourite companies that you've invested in? That's a funny one to answer because they're all, they're all different. The founders are all very different. Some of the businesses that you get the most satisfaction from are, are the businesses that have had really difficult periods that they've been able to be helped through because you just get a lot more out of that journey. You know, it's like sort of what you put in, you get out. What we do tend to do here is we look for big second order benefits to our investments. So first order benefit is customer gets utility from the product. Second order benefit is through the customer getting a utility from the product, other people win. You know, whether that's society or whether that's the team that that person works in or whether that might be something else. And we do look for companies like that. And, you know, Swoop Aero is built arguably the most advanced long range autonomous drone in the world outside of a military drone. And um, when they make a delivery, you know, they are delivering vaccines and pharmacology and pathology to people in need. And at the first board meeting of Swoop, the first bullet point of the first board meeting, pack, Eric, the CEO said, you know, we saved a woman's life on this, on this particular island in Vanuatu. And I was like, gee, I wonder what that's all about. So we had a discussion about it and Eric said that this woman had given birth, uh, she had started the bleed, a hemorrhage, the clotting agent wasn't available on her island. To get the clotting agent was a three to four hour boat ride away, no airstrip on the island. And within 22 minutes, Swoop had the clotting agent on the island and she survived. And the flow on effect of that is that she survives, her kids, large family grow up with a mum small community, doesn't lose a mother in that community, husband doesn't have to do the job of raising the kids as opposed to all the extended family doesn't have to raise the kids. And so there's huge flow on benefits. And I, we, you know, we got to the end of a discussion around that first bullet point and I half jokingly sort of folded up the pack and said, okay, board meeting's over, that's job done. And, and that's hugely satisfying when you have those experiences. And, you know, we've got companies that are addressing mental health in kids, and teenagers at school. Which one is the mental health one? Uh, that's called Ali Health. Sorry, the mental health company is um, Komodo Wellbeing, uh, which is based in New Zealand. Ali Health helps with uh, addiction management and addiction treatment. You know, we've got a crime technology company in New Zealand, which helped solve 18% of total crime in New Zealand last year. And the real flow and benefit there is that it helps police forces actively build cases on sophisticated and repeat offenders and takes the societal pressure off people who are from lower socioeconomic levels who do what's called opportunistic theft in order to solve 
an extremely short-term need, like I'm hungry. And about 70% of total crime is done by sophisticated and organised crime. So I think just the benefit of that is that you can help people and the police can help people find a path out of solving their short-term socioeconomic needs with you know, good education and a focus on rehabilitation outside of the prison system. And you can actually, and the police can actually focus on people who are the true criminals. And so that's an extraordinary company that is in some of the largest retailers in the world. And uh, we've got a company, um, you know, I mean, a couple of our companies we invested on the day that they incorporated. There was literally no shares to buy the day before. And it's satisfying being a part of those journeys and riding along with the founders and helping them build their company. So, and that's where the real fun is. It's not about whether you've got money and you're investing it. It's, it's more about how you allocate it and who you allocate to and, how, and what the journey's like. There's, I think, great stories in our portfolio. And, you know, Ansarada listed last year and we worked with Sam and Rachel Riley to help build that company and to see them list the company and to uh, be able to level up again and put in a larger, more sophisticated management team around them and that didn't mean that all decisions had to run to the founders was, you know, fascinating to watch. It seems like the sort of failure rate of your investment investing is really quite low. What do you credit that with? Uh, yeah, it's quite low. I talked about investment process. I think one of the things that in our investment process is that we anchor to the people and our observations of the people and picking companies that we think will not have a lot of competition. That doesn't necessarily mean they're not invaluable spaces. It just might be, mean that we're sort of picking areas that counterintuitively are going to be larger than what they seem with good economic models behind their companies that we have the patience to see play out. And when they need us, we support them and we try and co-invest alongside other investors that we think will also do the same thing. I think that that's resulted in, you know, a very low failure rate relative to the risk that we're taking on. And it would be quite normal to assume, okay, well, if you don't have a lot of failures in your portfolio, you're not taking on a lot of risk in the portfolio, but 96% of our investments are seed or pre-seed companies. And as I said, you know, some of those companies are literally a pitch deck without any stock to issue. So fundamentally, we couldn't take a lot more risk, but we don't take risk on values of the people we invest with. You know, we spend a lot of time trying to work out what type of people they are. And there's an old phrase, which is you can't do a good deal with bad people. And I think that that's kind of right. I, I really do. And I, I think what happens with investors is they you know, they have a sort of sinking feeling in their stomach, but they're sure that they should make an investment. They don't listen to their gut and then people fail and good or bad, they fail and um, didn't get away with it, uh, not listening to their gut. And I think you can sort of turn a blind eye to your gut and turn a blind eye to observation a little bit, but on the balance of probability, it will ruin a portfolio over time if you do it too much. And um, we just think it's more prudent to not test the boundaries of people's behaviour by exposing our, our funds to it. So I think that that also goes a long way to it. I mean, we've, we've just got a group of founders that just have great resolve and lots of reserves and they're transparent and they put their hand up when they need help. And, you know, we can't always help them. You know, we might not have the skills ourselves, but, you know, that, that's what we're looking for in people. and That's what we're looking for inside our team as well. And do you facilitate lots of interaction between your portfolio companies? Like, 
mean, I sort of first to admit the things that we don't do well, and, and one of them is that we haven't been able to, uh, either with the scale of our team or the way that we've approached the companies, which is more direct engagement with founders, we haven't historically done a great job of facilitating shared learning across our portfolio. But we're in the midst of building a platform right now that will allow a product manager in one company to, to work with a product manager in another company and to share resources and best practice or a people and culture manager in a company to learn about best practice in another company. And so we're actually, we've actually been building out that platform for the last six months. And um, so that should be released pretty soon to our portfolio. And I think that that will be a big advantage. It, it's a very hard thing to scale and it's not something that we've done well. So I think you've always got to be introspective about what you're not doing well. And, and that's something that I think we identified about 12 months ago that we needed to improve. You seem to be one of those humble people who's always, you know, happy to talk about the stuff that doesn't go well. Is there a particular setback or failure that you learnt a lot from over your time as a, either as a founder or as an investor? Yeah, I think um, picking people. You know, I don't think we got the best investors or the most supportive investors into shipping easy. And um, and is that just because you t- took the checks that were available or...? You didn't know what criteria to use? We took the money in Shipping Easy before there was a sort of venture capital 2.0 in Australia. And, you know, back then sort of we had this sort of funny phrase that it's not the 90s here. And what that means to us is that you don't put the capital in front of the people who are actually creating the value. I think if you fundamentally want to get good outcomes in venture capital, you know, the order is founder, company, investor, VC firm. And if you try and invert that, Maybe you get away with it once in a while, but you can't operate like that and maintain a good reputation. You know, I think that that was one of the great lessons, which is in this game, you have to put the founders first. You have to put the company first. And if you do that, and if you have a clear line of sight on on doing that, value will emerge and the opportunity to um, generate a return will emerge. And of course, you, you know, that doesn't mean that you're, you know, when a company does a follow-on round that you necessarily have to follow on if you, you know, if you don't have the capital or, you know, enough capital or you know, it doesn't make sense or the company's not performing, it doesn't mean you automatically follow on, but you do have to help the founders solve the issues that they're facing. And so the lesson that, that I learned with my own founding experience was, you know, it's important to pick your co-investors. It's important to pick people who are aligned on the duration of the investment that they're making relative to the duration of the journey of the company. You do not want to be bringing short-term return people into a company that's going to take 10 years to build. I mean, that is just absolute recipe for disaster. And so founders need to understand, you know, what are the expectations of the investors before they take that money? And they have to be prepared to say, no, there really actually wasn't a lot of capital around back when we raised our... um, our first round of capital and we raised 1.3 million and on top of money we put in, I think the founders, I think we put a couple hundred thousand dollars into that round as well. I mean, it was really was very different environment. There was a investors would say, well, how much are you putting into this round? And those questions don't come up these days. I mean, it's the realization that the founders are putting their whole life into the company is, is something that didn't exist back then. And so I think that that that's the big lesson. Is there a person in your life that has been a fabulous role model or, or mentor for you? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've got five mentors that I've had through my life. I grew up 
the sport that I played was uh, skiing. So I grew up ski racing and that was my career. I did that for 11 years, almost full time uh, during my teens and early 20s. And I had a role model, a gentleman that um, had built a very successful company, had four kids, had a terrific marriage, really took me under his wing and, and was a great mentor and got to watch somebody who was working in extremely high pressure environments but had done extremely well on any measurement, had done extremely well and how he was able to balance his family, his marriage and also the extreme requirements of, of his work I think was fascinating to watch and, you know, quite a commercial individual. I didn't, as I said, I didn't come from a particularly commercial family. So, and I'd always been fascinated by investment and, and commerce more broadly. So just so to see that up close and to have somebody who was patient and a great educator and good steward of decision-making for me was fantastic. My godfather was an outstanding individual, um, was sort of a prodigy student. I think he had a scholarship for mathematics and English at university and was one of the youngest CEOs of a consulting firm in the world. Just a really outstanding individual, you know, in his mid twenties was a advisor to Malcolm Fraser, the PM. And, you know, just having him alongside and seeing how he worked through the consideration of tough problems was fascinating for me. And he was just a great, passed away a few years ago, but just a, just a really great mentor. On our board, I have Brett Cairns, who's the CEO of Magellan, on our board at, at Folklore. And Brett's been a great mentor and a great advisor. Magellan's his third funds management business, and it's a wildly successful company. I mean, they've been managing $125 billion, and they've done that from scratch in 14 or 15 years alongside Hamish and uh, Chris. And just having him as an individual to lean on when I need it is, is really fascinating. And we want to build a multi-generational firm here at Folklore. And when I asked Brett to join the board, I said, look, I can't really teach you anything, but if you're interested in technology, I think we're, I think we're going to try and make an impact. And if you can teach me how to build a firm that's got duration and longevity, that would be amazing. And so that's, that was the tenant of the, of the relationship and he's been fantastic and there's other mentors that, that I have that are really outstanding people and, and it's really important to find people that you don't always have to agree with their, their advice, but a high degree of mutual respect is, is important. So, Beyond people, what are some of the, the other resources that have sort of shaped your thinking? Any sort of favourite books or podcasts or other resources that you go to? I love wisdom. I love getting other people's wisdom and it, it might be cliche, but you know, I think the Capital Allocators podcast is fascinating. That's um, a guy called Ted Sides. There's a guy called Shane Parrish who has the, the Knowledge Project and, and that's fascinating. I'm a pretty heavy reader, so I love, I love reading. I think the lessons that Buffett and Munger have been able to instill on people are great life lessons more broadly, not just great investment lessons and... Um, and so I, I did start reading a lot of their material back in my teens. And so I have that printed in the back of my head. And, and I, I think, um, you know, there's some great books like Poor Charlie's Almanac is, is fantastic. The 
if you can get your hands on the Berkshire letters to investors, I think that that's, they're brilliant. There's a great book, it's called Crucial Conversations, which I think is really quite a good book. Scale by Jeffrey West is, is an excellent book. There's another good book called um, Devil Takes the Hindmost by Edward Chancellor. And we've gone through an inflation, a sort of a asset bubble, or we are in an asset bubble, or maybe we're not in an asset bubble, but we just feel like we're in an asset bubble. But we're, whatever we're in, there are lessons to be learned from what's happened before. And Devil Takes the Hindmost is about learning about asset bubbles and... Um, it goes all the way back to the Jula bubble and it's really quite fascinating and some simple understanding about uh, being able to identify when, you know, something's amiss, um, a bit of caution might be valuable. So, you know, I'm constantly reading, trying to find, just trying to find a lesson somewhere. What's the best advice you could give an entrepreneur who's thinking about, you know, raising around or, or thinking about whether their company needs external capital? I think the best lesson is to understand what their ambition is. Really probe what their desire is, what their ambition is. Is it to have a business that is provide a comfortable existence or is it a business that you sort of want to make a dent on the universe with? And if you are trying to build something that fundamentally changes the environment that your customers are in or that people experience, and you want to do that quickly because you feel like the competition is there and you want to you know, beat the competition or you feel like there's no other way to fundamentally achieve what you want to achieve without venture capital, then I think you should take strongly consider taking venture capital. I think a lot of people who try and raise venture capital but don't succeed don't realise that they haven't set their ambition at the level that matches their investors. And as I said, you know, it's important to match the expectation of your investor to what you are building. And we talked about that from a duration perspective. You also need to uh, understand that as a founder, that venture capital firms are trying to multiply the funds over. And, and so therefore, they need to anchor their investment decision making to companies that can do that, and not just modestly good companies that uh, might do well. And so I think there is a general level of frustration in the ecosystem around uh, from founders who didn't get a check from VC firms. And I think some of that just stems from not necessarily the people or the business model, but actually just what the ambition is. Um, for instance, we, we are not inclined to invest in a Australia domestic only company because there's not many markets in Australia that are big enough that allow you a lot of room for failure and still build a very big company. Last question, what are the things that you're really excited and optimistic about? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm super excited about building Folklore. I literally wake up hoping to find the next great company every single day. And the further away that we get from Canberra and the further away we get from Atlassian being founded, the closer we get to an Atlassian and a Canberra. And, you know, as, as VC firms in Australia get bigger and bigger, my feeling is that they are getting further away from those companies as well. That it's not necessarily a fait accompli that because they're big, the very best founder will go to them. And I don't think the status quo within venture capital is in a state of uh, stasis. Uh, I think it's, it's actually moving. And I think there's a lot of room to make an impact as a firm. And, and that's, that's what excites me. And I think if you look to the US and if you look to other 
more established venture capital ecosystems, what existed five years ago and 10 years ago is very different to what exists now. And the firms that are doing the best now are not necessarily the ones that were doing the best five to 10 years ago. And so these are very fluid environments and we take our role within that ecosystem really seriously. And we want to, uh, you know, we want to build something that's durable and has a big impact. And we want to work with the very best founders and the best companies. For me, that personally, that's the most exciting thing that I could do. I love the folklore name and the branding and um, it's just fabulous to talk to you. So thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure. I really appreciate the time and I appreciate your interest. We hope you loved today's conversation as much as we did and are fired up to take your startup journey to the next level. As an investment network founded by women, no one better understands what it takes for women-led startups to thrive, like scale investors. We believe education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. That's why we created Scale Educated, an education platform with online courses for both founders and investors. If you're a woman founder, Scale has two education programs, Scale Founded, a five-day short course combining one-hour live webinar sessions delivered by experienced investors and founders, access to an online education platform, and the opportunity to network with trailblazing women entrepreneurs. Scale Founded is launching in February 2022. The other exciting program is Scale Empowered, a 10-week facilitated series, an opportunity to put your learnings into the context of your own startup with a cohort of incredible women entrepreneurs by your side. You can find all of the information and register on our website, www.scaleinvestors.com.au.